Amen. We will be in Isaiah 50. If you want to turn there, we're just going to read through a text together. We have been studying through a portion of Isaiah this month, and it's been our joy to continue to search the scriptures in this way, and we'll lead all the way up to Advent season in December with the prophet and enjoy God together like that. Today, as we read this, I want you to meditate and think with me on the concept of distance. This has been Missions Week here at TCC, and as, even as you can see, as we were doing the video a minute ago, there are some distance issues that you have to work out when you're thinking about global mission. We had some geographical distance, so we had to do some technology today, and that's uh, appropriate for missions. There's also cultural distances. One of the big challenges that our missionaries face when they engage other people groups, other ethnic groups, is that our cultural norms are distinct from the people that they're relating to. Some things that we do normally, as, uh, without much thought, can actually be extremely offensive to other cultures. Here's some examples that I thought of um, this week. And for instance, if you were to go into Iran and you were to give everybody a thumbs up, hey man, how you doing? You don't want to do that. That actually means just shove it. So you don't want to be giving that signal to people. Uh, in parts of Japan, if somebody hands you the business card, just gives it to you, don't put it in your pocket because that's an offensive thing to put someone's livelihood and dismiss it by putting it in your pocket. Cultural distance there. In some African nations, if you say, hey, I like your watch, you'll end up getting it because they'll feel obligated in some places to give you the watch. It means something different. Uh, in parts of Argentina, if you're going to a dinner party, you should show up an hour late. To show up on time means that you're greedy and you want to eat all the food. So show up late. Sometimes TCC runs on Argentina norms, <laughs> but we don't intend to. We want to be timely. But it's not just cultural separations that we face when we do missions. There's also uh, financial gaps between us and the third world, world countries, language distance that we have to bridge. But what Isaiah speaks about today is the most important distance, and that is the distance between every people group and their creator, God. That's the biggest distance, the biggest gap we are going to have to bridge if we intend to reach the globe for Jesus Christ. This gap between man and God, there is a severe separation that has to be Bridge. So the chief thing we want to keep in mind when doing missions is how are we going to bridge this gap? And the scriptures speak to this. Um, the book of Isaiah is helpful in this. What I want to look at in chapter 50 today is going to be three realities surrounding the distance between all people, groups, and God. So that's your outline. We're going to look at three realities surrounding the distance that exists between every tongue, tribe, and nation and their creator, God. Here's the first one from Isaiah 50, verses 1 through 3. It's on man. It's on man. What I mean by that is the responsibility for this separation between God and man rests on the shoulders of man. It's man's fault. It's not God's fault. In fact, when you look at the statistics regarding the separation, the lostness of the world. It can be very staggering. Here's some latest statistics that I saw online this week. Listen to this. Today there are 506 
unreached, unengaged people groups with more than a 10,000 in that people group. That amounts to over 51 million people who are unreached and unengaged. Now, that's not talking about total world lostness, understand. That's just the tribes that haven't even been targeted yet. There's nothing going on to engage them with the gospel. 51 million people, and there's no missionary, no mission agency that's going there. They've yet to hear the gospel. When you think about those stats, you think, wow, a ton of people who haven't heard the gospel. What if I was born among a tribe that had no access to the gospel? Would the separation between me and God actually be my fault, right? If the gospel hasn't arrived, couldn't you say, well, maybe God has forgotten about these people, right? How can the responsibility be on man? Well, the scriptures are clear. There's actually a pattern here that we see beginning in Isaiah 50, that even though man and God are separated, even though some have never heard the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the responsibility is on man for actually pulling away from God. In the context of our verse here in chapter 50 in Isaiah, uh, what has happened is uh, God's people have been exiled to Babylon, right? Because of their sin, they've been exiled and they're feeling all alone, and they're feeling abandoned. They're calling out to God, feeling abandoned, and chapter 50 begins God's response to their feeling of separation. They feel alone. They're calling out to God, why have you left me? Why have you left me? And God responds. Read with me his response in verse 1 of chapter 50. What he says, thus saith the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. So God is acknowledging the separation between him and his people by using a couple of word pictures. He acknowledges the separation by comparing it to divorce, a separation that we would understand. And also an ancient custom, if you were in debt, sometimes you'd be separated from your children. Your children would be the payment to your own debt. Keep that in mind. It's, and we don't do that anymore, but God was saying, God was saying, sometimes you can feel the separation. He was making these analogies, and listen to what he says. He says, your sin is what caused this separation. He said, for your iniquities, you were sold, right? And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. So Israel's sin actually caused the separation between them and God. And he declares in verse 2 that he in fact did reveal himself. He did show himself to God's people. In verse 2 he says, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called to you was there no one to answer? He's using the language of coming to them, revealing himself to people, but they are not responding in worship. But thankfully, take note in our text, God doesn't leave people there. Though there's an incredible distance that is the fault of people groups, God doesn't leave them there. In verse 2, he says, is my hand shortened that I can't redeem? In other words, I still have the power to redeem you. I don't have a short hand. I have a long arm that can stretch and save you, even though you've caused a separation. 
Or have I no power to deliver? Don't think because you've rebelled against me and caused this distance that I can't still come and get you, says God. He affirms that he still can save these people. And the way he affirms, it's interesting, in verse 2, he starts reminding them of his great power in the Exodus. Read verse 2 and see if you can see some Exodus language coming out. He said, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth for their covering. If you've read the story of Moses delivering God's people out of Egypt, that imagery will come alive to you and you'll think, wait a minute, God does have power to save those who are apart from him. He did it in the Exodus and he can do it even today. As far back as we have record, even with Adam and Eve, Separation has always worked this way. Think about the garden. It wasn't God who pulled away from Adam. It was Adam who sinned against God and caused the separation. Um, And even though this text is talking about God's people of Israel, if you were to look back in the book from chapters 13 to 23, there's 10 chapters where God says every ethnic group is guilty of causing this separation. It's not just Israel, but he expands it to all people who don't worship him. They have pulled away. They are the one who is guilty. It is on man when you think about the responsibility of this lostness, this separation. How this affects our missions, it affects how we think about it. When we think of going like the Houstons are going to the Kurdish people, we don't think we're going because they are guiltless, right? That's not the way we should think. Exotic doesn't mean they are excused, right? Impoverished doesn't mean they are innocent. Biblically speaking, every people group is guilty of causing this separation before God by their sin. Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that he's revealed himself to every people and yet the people turn away. Here's a practical example that might uh, clear this up for you. You know, when you decide for the month of November to wear a mustache that's a little out of style, (laughs) you're taking some fashion risk, right? One thing that's risky is unlike a bad haircut, you can't put a hat on right? Or a bicep tattoo, you can't roll your sleeves down. The mustache is always out there, right? And so when I talk to people, people will often comment back to me. I have heard the comment about looking like a seedy policeman or a 70s star. I think, I think those are all supposed to be bad things, not good things. The word creepy comes out. Some people, when I talk to them now, it used to didn't come up. Uh, my wife said the best thing. She said, I'm going to love you no matter how you look. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the worst thing. <laughs> Last Sunday was a really good one. I was here and I was going to a prayer meeting. People were going to meet to pray. And I was the last one to come into the room. They hadn't started praying yet, but they were all sitting around. And as I enter the room, a woman looks at me and says, oh, no. <laughs> That was the best one. But that's actually indicative of the current state of people in in reaction to God. God doesn't hide his glory. It's out there. It is revealed to everyone. And every single people group turns away and says, oh, no. I make a conscious, intentional 
choice to prefer something else. Just like every woman between the ages of 6 and 60 seems to not prefer the mustache, every people group is turning away and saying, no, God, I don't prefer you. I'm going to choose a God of my own making. And that is what causes the separation that brings us to want to go to people as missionaries and say, no, separation doesn't have to exist. We can have unity in Jesus Christ. So this is going to be our first point to remember when you think about mission, it's on man. The blame is on man. Second point, here's the second reality regarding the separation between people, people groups, and our God. The second reality is this, it's on the man. It's on the man. Not only does the blame for all of this distance between God and man rest on the shoulders of people, but the restoration, the hope for restoration is singly fixed on the man Jesus Christ from Nazareth. That is their only hope. Let's look back at our text. Verse 4. We now have a different speaker. It's not just God speaking now in the context of the prophecy. It's the servant speaking. This character has entered Isaiah's story called the servant. And he entered a couple of songs ago. He had a couple of other parts in the book of Isaiah that we've looked at already. But here he comes for the third time. And he's now speaking. This servant is someone who will serve Israel and all people beyond. This is the one, this servant, who will restore and sustain God's people. And he's going to do it through suffering. You've heard the term difference maker, right? This servant shows up as a distance breaker. He's going to be a reconciliatory person who brings God and man together. Look in verse 4. Here's what he says. He says, the Lord God, the servant says, has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, said his servant. I turned not backwards. So the servant here, the servant of the Lord, he hears God. He's like a prophet in that way. He hears God, he's not a rebel against God like everyone else. He didn't turn away. But he does turn here in the text. He doesn't turn away from God. He actually turns his back towards man. Like a rejected prophet, he turns away and he actually suffers for being a true prophet. Look in verse 6. He says, I give my back to those who strike. I turn my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But who is this suffering servant? Well, if you've read the New Testament, all this begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? In the passion narrative of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus of Nazareth fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew 27, verse 26, there's just one account of many in the New Testament of Jesus being scourged, right? He gets smacked in the head. He spat upon. Jesus is actually fulfilling this very prophecy as the suffering servant who came to save all peoples. And this is just a snapshot of how he suffered. Peter says it a little differently in, in um, chapter 2, 24 of 1 Peter. But you have to think, okay, how does this suffering actually save God's people? 
Peter explains it this way. Chapter 2, 24, 1 Peter, he said, well, he himself, the servant, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Listen to this distance talk. For you were strained like sheep. Hear that distance? But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, Jesus bore God's punishment for our rejection. When we said, oh no, to God, when he revealed himself to us, Jesus stepped in. Jesus knew we would be punished. So he stepped to the cross and said, punish me instead. And he caught the wrath. And as this text said, his righteousness is applied to us so that there's no longer any separation between a holy God and sinful man. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness so that we can have unity. So through the death of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Not only that, because of this forgiveness, we can now have restoration, unity. The distance is gone. We have harmony in its place. That's why Peter can say, you've returned back to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Christ's death is actually bringing us back to the harmonious life that we saw in Eden earlier in the scripture. Actually, if you read about Jesus's life, hopefully you're doing that as a follower of Jesus. Hopefully you're reading the gospel. I want you to begin to note as you're reading that, he's actually acting out this truth of reconciliation in a lot of what he does. For instance, when he does miracles or he's dealing with people, he's not just showing off his power. He is doing that, but he's actually proving the point that reconciliation is happening. Some of the words that he speaks, some of the actions that he's doing, he's bringing harmony and unity where once there was separation and disgrace. For instance, in Mark 5, we have a story of Jesus walking along on his way, and he's stopped by a woman with a disease, a bleeding disease, and she's broken. She's probably pushed outside of society, and Jesus turns and says, you're going to be healed because you're trusting in me. And then he says, go in what? Peace. In Hebrew, go in shalom. It means unity. He says, go now in unity. Why would he say that to her? Because in Christ, harmony begins afresh as it was in Eden. She is now able to be one with her family again after she's been healed by Jesus. She's now accepted in the community because she met Jesus. And most importantly, there's no longer any separation between this diseased woman and her God because of her faith and trust in Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels. You see him acting this out time and time again bringing restoration where there was once chaos. And how can we be sure this is working today? How can we know that God accepted Christ's sacrifice? Well, we see a, a picture of this in verse 7 in our text here. Because as you know, the servant, though he is suffering, the servant character in the story, though he's suffering, he's not shamed. He's not put to shame. Look what he says in verse 7 said, I've been suffering, but now in verse 7, the Lord God helps me, right? He helps me, therefore I've not been disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. Usually when you think of someone suffering, beaten, spat upon, shame is associated, but not 
with the servant, Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them are going to wear out. Everybody who declares me guilty, says the servant, they're going to wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. They will decay, but not Jesus, right? He did not decay. He was risen from the dead. He's alive. He did not stay in the tomb to rot and be disgraced by death and sin. Instead, he overcame in a victorious ascent. Really, really, really good news for us. What does that mean for missions? Well, it means that whether us here in North America or maybe the Allure people of Uganda, whichever people group, if we're going to participate in reconciliation to God, it has to be through Jesus. Now read verse 10. This is how you can be saved. He's talked already about the sacrifice of Jesus, the work of the servant. Now in verse 10, he brings it all together and says, this is how you can take part in this great salvation that's swooping across the globe. This is how you can personally take part. Whether you're American or you're part of any other tribe, well, no matter where you live, what you do, this is how you do it. Verse 10, he says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's how you become saved. That's how you bridge the the gap, the distance. You trust in the name of Christ and you rely on his sovereign God. Stop following the course of the world. Stop rejecting God and submit yourself. Say, I can't do it. I can't bridge the gap, but I trust that Christ can. You are my everything. You are my treasure. And this is how the servant's work is applied to you. But the servant doesn't end there. He wouldn't be serving us completely if he didn't just tell us the good news, but he also drops a warning in verse 11. Read what he says because he's very serious. The nice image. He's making a word picture. See if you can catch up on it. Verse 11. He says, Behold, all of you who kindle a fire. So get the picture. You who equip yourself with burning torches. You walk by the light of your own fire and by the torches that you have kindled, right? The idea is people trying to build their own wisdom, build their own way to God. Hey, I've got a better way. I've made my own fire over here. Look at this. What does the servant say to these people who are choosing their own options of salvation? He said, well, this is what you're going to get from my hand for building your own fire and trusting in your light as opposed to mine. Here it is, end of verse 11. This is what you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Why is that? Why can't we just build our own way? All these people groups who haven't heard of Jesus, why can't they create their own light? It is insufficient. It is insufficient to bridge the gap between God and man. You need a God-man to bridge the gap. Only a holy one can take the punishment. Any other confused worldview is just not going to work. This is why we must go as a church and continue sending the Houstons and others to go. People who want to use their business as mission. People who want to educate as mission. Doctors, nurses, we all can go. If we can't go, we can pray 
as we stay here and support the work as we're doing with the Houstons currently. So we've seen two realities here about the separation between all peoples and God. Here's the first one. First reality is that it's on man, right? It's on man. Man is to blame for the distance between God and people groups. Secondly, it's on the man. The hope rests on Jesus the Christ from Nazareth. The final point, now that the work of Christ is done, it's on, man. It's, the plan is on, right? The Spirit is moving. The church has the power to go to all nations with the gospel, and it is on. Christ will show his glory like never before during this age, and we will have the hope restored that all peoples can see him and raise up and worship Jesus Christ. And the way Isaiah is formatted in verse, sorry, in chapter 51, he starts giving us, God's people, three different comforts. So as we are going, knowing that the work of Jesus has been done, and that's all that has to be done to bring people and God together, he gives us three comforts as we are involved in the mission. Let's see what he has for us in Isaiah 51. Three comforts for us as we pursue missions. Read verse 1 with me from chapter 51, verse 1 and following. Well, the Word of God now says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Okay, that's us going after God hard. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. He's asking us to glance backwards while considering the current state of God's glory being spread. I don't know if you caught it when the Houstons were talking. It can be really discouraging if you just live in the now as you're doing missions. For instance, Kenny said, there's no Christians in our whole city here. We have a million people in the city, and there's no one claiming Christ. It looks like God's not working, right? If I just look here, if I hear about the 51 million people who still haven't been engaged, we can deceive ourselves. But the prophet says, look back to where you came from, the quarry from which you were cut. Take a backward glance to increase your faith. Specifically, verse 2, he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. See what I did? To Abraham, there was only one person, and from him the blessings to all nations flowed out of him. And not only that, consider the miracle that happened there, right? They were barren, and instead God gave them fruit upon fruit, a thousand acres of fruit, because he said all families are going to be blessed through them. He's saying, look back at that and take hope. Verse 3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Listen to the words the writer use, uses to describe the blessings of God that are going to be poured out. You hear those words? There's going to be a new Eden. There's going to be a garden of the Lord. Those are harmony type words, unity type words, peace type words. There's going to be joy. There's going to be gladness. The voice of a song. So here's the first comfort from God through this text. God is pointing us back to Abraham to give us 
comfort that his promise will be fulfilled. He had the power to do it. He made a barren woman have a baby. He has the power to accomplish his promises to save every single person from every single tribe that he wants to save. He can do it. Now, he may not do it in your timing, right? He may not save people the way you want them to be saved, but he will save them the way he wants to save each and every person that he has chosen. You can count on his victory today because of his past victory. It's like this weekend, I was watching the uh, Duke basketball game on TV, and they had a, they're going into this game against this team I never heard of, but they're playing this game, and they had a 117-game winning streak going in their building against non-conference foes. So love them or hate them, that's a pretty impressive streak. 15 years since they lost at Cameron Indoor to a non-conference foe. So going into that game, I'd never seen any of the players. They're all freshmen. But I thought, you know what? It's been 15 years since we've lost this game. I'm going to trust that we can handle this team. Similarly, God is saying, look at my past victories. I did it with Abraham. I did it with the Exodus. I can do it today. You just need to trust that if you are out there, you are spreading. God will bring salvation to all ethnic groups. That's our comfort that should free us up to pray, to go, and to give. Look in verse 4. There's another comfort here. Verse 4, we read, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, a law, a truth, a gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ will go out from me, and I will set justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, verse 5. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlines will hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Now look at this. See if you can see his point. See if you can follow his argument here. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. I remember in 2011 when the tornado bullied through downtown Raleigh after it was over and I was standing in this wake just looking around. One of the scariest things, most sobering thing, was to see these trees that have stood, these big, thick oak trees that had stood for many years, picked up like toothpicks and displaced from this yard to this yard, laying on their sides. And I thought, man, this earth is not going to last. Right? I remember being in the ancient city of Ephesus in Turkey, where the, where the Houstons are, and I was stepping on this pride of the Roman Empire, the city that had been there for 2,000 years. I was walking around the ruins, and the, the tour guide said, don't step on the ruins. And I said, well, well I think it's lasted 2,000 years. I think my footprint's going to be okay. And she said, no, the walls are crumbling. Even as we speak, this great stone structure is crumbling just like the people who once lived there. All worldviews will pass away. Everything on this earth will pass away. But the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ will remain forever. That's our second comfort here. The message that you have will last. It will remain forever. Again, we can be freed up knowing that we're not wasting our time. When you spend 15 minutes praying for our workers, when you give 
of your resources to help the mission. That's an eternal, forever type of gift. It will not be wasted. Salvation of God will last forever. Finally, in verse 7 and 8, one last comfort that this text gives us. Verse 7, he says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. That's us. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worth the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. This comfort is kind of like the last one, except a little dash of hope during sufferings has been added, right? He said, listen to me, you guys are going to be reviled as you go, as you share, as you cross cultural boundaries with the gospel, there's going to be some hard knocks. Missionaries and churches are going to suffer if we're serious about this task of global evangelization. If we want to reach the Turkmen, the lost tribe in Afghanistan, we're going to have to suffer. But here he says, take hope in the midst of your suffering. Why? It has to do with a little moth. Did you read that verse? Did you hear about that moth again? We saw it in the last chapter 50. Last time this moth came through our text, what did the servant say? The servant said, that moth is not going to eat me. I'm not going to decay. Remember, we just read that. The servant said, I'm not going to decay. Instead, Jesus said, I'm going to rise again, right? Moth won't get me. And now he brings the moth back up and says, the moth is not going to get God's people either. If we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will also share in his victory. So we can move forward into dangerous places with the gospel, knowing that we will be eternally vindicated. Kendra and Kenny have all kinds of problems with their kids because it's dangerous. They can't send them out to play like we would play. They can't educate them in the same way that we would educate. Why? Because there's safety issues where they're at. And yet, they have hope that they will be vindicated even if, God forbid, they experience suffering in their family. Vindication is for those who finish the task. So, this week, what I'm doing is asking you to reflect on this passage, to read this text again. And when you think about missions, think about these three things. First, the blame for the separation between God and man is on man. That's on man. It's his fault. He is to blame. We're not going after innocent people. We love them. We have compassion. They're in the image of God. We will show them justice. But let's not pretend that they are innocent. Two, the hope for reconciliation rests on the man, Jesus Christ. We will educate. We will develop. We will microfinance. All this stuff is good. And we're going to keep doing it. We need to realize the ultimate hope is in the man, Jesus Christ. And finally, man is God's plan on. It is on. Now that Christ has finished his work and the Spirit is moving, we can trust that radical things are happening all over the globe, where the Houstons are and where our other workers are, and we can be a part of it. So in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, as we do weekly. And I'm going to ask that we're going to do it just a little bit different this week. In a moment after I pray, I'm going to ask that everybody just go ahead and get up if you're taking part in the Lord's Supper 
and bring it back to your seat and then wait because we're going to all take the elements together, okay? The Lord's Supper is for believers. If you're a guest here and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take the supper. If you're an unbeliever, we ask that you just watch and see what we do. But in a minute, what's going to happen is we're all going to get up, go get the elements. There's two tables up front, one in the back, and then come back to your seat. And I want to read a passage of Scripture. And while we read that passage, we're going to take the elements together. Because what the elements symbolize is our unity in the sufferings of Christ. We have the death of Christ on display when we drink a red cup. That symbolizes his death. His body has been killed. That's why we're taking the bread and we're taking it inside of ourselves to remember that we're part of the suffering, but also that we're part of the victory achieved by the death of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do after I pray is we're going to all get up if you're taking part in the supper, come get the elements, then come sit back down, and I'll lead you through taking the elements together. And as you take it, I ask that you talk to God. Ask him, what can I do? What can I do through my job to further the mission that's going to happen according to the scriptures? All people groups are going to hope in him. And when that happens, the end will come. Jesus will return. So how can I be a part of it? Maybe I'm supposed to pray a certain way. Maybe I'm supposed to go. Maybe I'm supposed to give. I don't know, but I want you to ask God during this time as we take the Lord's Supper after I pray. Let's pray together. God, I do pray that you continue to reveal yourself to people all over the globe so that none stand with an excuse, Father. Everybody sees your glory, and I pray that they no longer look away. I pray instead that they look your glory in the face and they see Jesus and they hear about him through the gospel witness. And may little sections of worshipers begin to pop up more and more and more until you have saved some from all peoples. And then we will rejoice, not of Christ, but with Christ as he returns, Father. I pray looking forward to that day. And I pray for us as a church that you would stir us up by your spirit to be involved. We can pray, we can give, we can go to further the task is almost complete as the gospel spreads to all nations. So I pray for these blessings and many more as we take the supper together today. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's now go and approach the supper tables and get the elements and then return back to your seat and in a moment we'll eat together. As we are returning to our seats. I just want to read a hopeful scripture over you. Scripture from Isaiah 66. Later, later in the great book of Isaiah. And as I read it, I just want to ask you, pray to God, asking him how you can be a part of his global mission. After I read the text, we'll take the supper together. Isaiah 66 says this, For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and they shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. 
From them I will send survivors to the nations, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Let's take the bread and the cup together, looking forward to the day when all flesh in Jesus worships the true sovereign Lord.